Well, good morning, everybody. Already, already such a good morning. Uh, you know, it is a bit of a shame that we're sitting in here. Not because of Super Bowl Sunday. It doesn't, it shouldn't affect us, but it's a beautiful day and uh, can't wait to get back out there. But I am excited to be together this morning to gather together as friends, as, as people on the journey along the way, as, as those who need Jesus both for salvation and for daily sustaining. It's just, it's just an amazing thing to be able to come together just as, just as we are and to know that Jesus accepts us as we are but doesn't leave us where we're at. So we come together this morning and this time to come to his word, praying that his word would do what it does, that it never returns void, it never, it never does not change, it never does not have an impact. And so we know that because we are coming to the word of God today, that we should come into it expectantly and asking for God to work through it to transform us and change us individually and collectively as his church, as his people. So before I go any further, let me go ahead and pray for us and then we'll get into the word today. So God, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for a chance to come together on this beautiful Sunday. And Lord, to come, we have the freedom to come together and gather in your name, Lord. We have the freedom to come together regardless of our, our history, of our, of our experience. And Lord, uh, that, that you have created this space, Lord, for us to um, make connections of life that we could care for one another. But not just as, as nice people, but as people that have the truth your truth in us. And Lord, to know that your truth and your light living through us is what benefits one another. God, it is for your glory. Lord, it is all because of Jesus and it's all for Jesus. So Lord, this morning, let your word do its work in us. Lord, do your work in us. Lord, we don't want to be here for any other reason. So God, just help us to be free from doubt, but also let us to be free in our doubt to bring it to you. And Lord, us confessing and submitting it to you, trusting in you. So Lord, we come to you now in your word, and in fellowship, in Jesus' name, amen. So, kind of interesting as we come into today's text, I kind of, as I'm thinking through the, the, the thrust of the text, the question that comes to mind for me is, is what do we do with the Old Testament? The Testament before this book that we're in, so if, we're, if you don't know, we're in the book of Matthew right now. Uh, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew 5, or, you know, use a Bible or an app, uh, if you don't have either one of those, look underneath you, uh, around you on the floor. You'll see some Bibles there. Uh, someone can help you find it if you need to. But we're going to be in Matthew 5. If you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love for you to take this as our gift to you. But the, what do we do with the Old Testament? How does the Old Testament, how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament Christianity that we know today? The Christianity that Jesus established, the one that is all about him, it bears his name the one that is liberated in him, and what role does the law and obedience to it play in the Christ follower's life, in really everyone's life? When we think about that, we see two extremes. We see two extremes in our world. We see kind of two poles to this. We see what's called, if you want a big word of the day, antinomians, antinomianism, which basically means that the Old Testament law, the law, the commands of God, play no part in our life anymore, and the Christian is left up to define their own morality as they understand it. The law is going it's not worth anything anymore. So that's one poll. The other side is the legalist, a term you're maybe more familiar with, and that's the one that says salvation depends on your obedience to the law. So the law is everything. So you've got the extreme antinomian, you've got the extreme legalist. Both are extremes. And when we see extremes in these cases, we don't want to be there, okay? But that's kind of your two poles. That's kind of what you see. 
So total licentiousness, total define your own thing, you find your own truth, or obedience is your key to salvation. So what do we do with that? So when we think about it, of course, we come to the New Testament, which means we've come to the time of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah. And what do, so what do we do with these two pieces, the Old Testament and New Testament? And, you know, you know if you are a Christ follower, we, we get the Jesus part. And maybe if you're not, maybe you still can conceptually understand that he's good. And we like the Jesus part. We like the part that we were dead in our sin and now we're alive in Christ. We like the part that we were hopeless and now we are full of hope. We like the part where we were condemned and now we're redeemed. We get that part of Jesus. We like that part of Jesus. It's hopeful. We should like it, right? But yet there's still this, this other aspect of our, of, our, of our understanding that what is our code of conduct now that Christ has come? Because the New Testament was really a lot of code of conduct. Your righteousness was expressed through your conduct, your, your conduct, your adherence to the law. So what do we do? What's our code of conduct now that we have our redemption in Christ? And we're going ahead and we're foreshadowing a lot of the thrust of our talk today, but we have to. So we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount right now, right now in Matthew 5. The first 12 verses that we looked at last fall is what's called the Beatitudes. And in that teaching, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first and longest sermon in all of Scripture. It's the first one we come to, and it's the longest one. When we, in the first 12 verses of it, what he's teaching, he's teaching the characteristics of a Christ follower. In quick review, those characteristics are those of the Christ follower because they are in Christ. They are brought up in Christ as they confess and find salvation in him, and they are actually the characteristics of Jesus himself. But in the first 12 verses, he's describing the characteristics of those who are Christ followers. And then in the last, the next few verses that we looked at last week, 13 through 16, he's talking about the Christ followers being the salt and light of the world. And so he's describing these characteristics of those who are in Christ up to this point. You know, Jesus is teaching, he hasn't mentioned the law at all. He hasn't mentioned the Old Testament at all in this sermon. And let's just picture the setting. So it's for, some, for some of you, it's review. For some of this is new. But the setting, he's, he's in the middle of the Jewish world. He's in the middle of, of everything. He's sitting on a hillside. He's got a crowd around him, and he's teaching right in the middle of the Jewish world. Not all people that are listening are Jewish here, but they, but they know Jewish culture, tradition, and they, they've seen the Jewish Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees holding to this law with all their might. They've seen that. They know it. So he's sitting in the midst of this inculcated culture of the Jewish reality. And so, but he's teaching with this great authority, but he hasn't mentioned the law yet, which, by the way, that's all they had. Like, that was, that was it. So it was all teaching was the law. So it begs the question, what does Jesus think about the law and the role of the law? So the big question for us today, our big question is this, how does my, how does your obedience or lack thereof to the commands of Jesus in the word of God, relate to yours and my standing before God? Seems like a pretty important question, right? Like that's maybe one we would like to suss out today, wrestle with a little bit. So to answer that question, we're going to answer four questions today that we find answers in our text, hopefully. The first question we're going to answer is, how are Jesus and the law related? Okay, second question, why is it necessary that Jesus, 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 should speak. She sells, she sells down by the seashore. Anyway, 
Why is it necessary that Jesus should speak to the law? Why would he teach about the law? Why is it necessary? The third question, what should the attitude of Christ followers be toward the law? In other words, how should Christ followers think about and respond to the law? And then finally, what does Jesus require for entry into the kingdom of heaven? Pretty big questions today. So we're going we're gonna to work through this text and hopefully find those answers and walk out with a hunger for the law and commands of God. So let's go to our text today. We're going to read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Here we go. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, just to make sure we're ultra clear here. This is Jesus speaking. So the I is Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So our first question is this, how are Jesus and the law related? We see it right here out of the gates, verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we see the relationship right away. Jesus is aware of the crowd's perspective. Again, he's been teaching up to this point, hasn't mentioned the law. He looks out on the crowd. Let's just use our imaginations a little bit. Be there. Okay, he looks out on the crowd and he, he knows what they're thinking because he's God, right? He knows what they're thinking and just intuition, you know. Like, I think we would all know if we were sitting there. Like, these, they're concerned about this. But he's God, so he even knows, like, the words they're thinking. But he, you know, so he looks out and he knows their concern. And so we, we see this, uh, as I think about this verse, I think about what would bring him to, to express this. And first, I think it's definitely a sensitivity, knowing that they likely would be concerned that he hasn't mentioned the law of the Old Testament yet. Their sacred teachings. But then in knowing that, he also knows what he's about to teach as he moves through the rest of his sermon. He knows where he's going. And he's making kind of a preemptive strike on the rebuttals and the objections that would come his way as he teaches through the rest of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And, as he, if, and if you've read this, maybe, maybe you recognize this. If you haven't, let me just tell you, this Sermon on the Mount is kind of the, the, the revolutionized new code of conduct for the people of God. It's the code of conduct of expressed under those who are under the lordship of Jesus. He knows where he's going. And he knows that it's going to be a revolutionary teaching. To, you know, it's, it's, it, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's just keep moving. But verse 17 is nipping any objections that may come concerning the law right in the bud. And every time I say nipping it in the bud, I think of Andy Griffith shows. Anybody ever watch that? If you haven't, if you've never heard of it, oh, man. But I hope you've heard of it. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. Barney Fife, nip it in the bud. Uh, so anyway, but that's what Jesus is doing, and I'm sure he didn't say it that way. I'm nipping it in the bud. He didn't, but that's kind of what he's doing here. He's just preemptive strike of truth here. He's like, 
You're going to hear lies in your head, as, you, you know, as we all are prone to do. You're, going to, you know, you're just going to raise up, and I just want to go ahead and just give you some seeds of truth to help you navigate what's coming your way. So then we, so as, we, as we see Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus knows that there is and will be a wrong way of thinking by the people about the law and commands of God. Why does he know that? One, because it's been proven that we're prone to that. Also, he's God, so he knows past, present, future. He also knows that we will always continue to have a problem of knowing how to interact with the commands of God. As we are called to be obedient, as we are called to willful action, he knows that we have a tendency to mistreat. Think about the Pharisees. It wasn't their concern for the law that they were condemned for. It was their idolization of the law, their control of it, their usage of it, their misapplied usage of it the use of it to control the world around them, the use of it to control their righteousness, the use of it to control their standing before God, that was the error, not the concern. They should have been concerned with the law. So he knows, he knows that's what we're prone to. He knows, what that, he knows that's what they were prone to. He knows that those who were not even in the know were taught that. So he knows. He's making it clear right away that even though his teaching is revolutionary concerning the law, he has not come to abolish the law. See, we see that same tendency today, like I just mentioned in his day. We see in our world, and even in those who call themselves Christ followers, especially, this is problematic, and it's, it's more concerning, and that some disregard all law, as we kind of described earlier, because of grace. They say, it's by grace I've been saved. I'm good. The gospel, right? The gospel. Or again, someone are, we, we see it all the time, maybe even ourselves. Some say that that's too easy and it's dangerous to give people that freedom. Grace is dangerous. They need, to, they need to feel the weight of the law. They need to do some work themselves to make sure, you know. And so there's this, again, we see those poles again. And so that's kind of how it plays out. So Jesus clarifies his relationship to the law in a negative and a positive. So we see he says that he has not come to abolish the law, the negative, but came to fulfill the law, the positive. So what does that mean? We see that term. been saying it a bunch this morning, the law and the prophets. What are we talking about? When we say the law and the prophets, just to kind of get right to it, we can, you can, we can talk about the, 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 the depths of this later, but just know it's when, we, when Jesus talking about the law and the prophets, it's a way of saying all of Scripture. He's speaking to all of Scripture that they had at the time, all of written Scripture. So what is that Scripture? It is the same Genesis through Malachi that you have in those books in your lap right now. That's what they had. And you want to talk about people kind of like ears perking up. Like Jesus is coming with some authority here and he's coming kind of in the face of this law. And let me just remind you, if you don't know, the, the God has not spoken for 40 years. Not 40, 400 years. Thank you. Caleb gave me a hmm and then a wait. And so <laughs> 400 years. You haven't heard from God. The prophets have been silent. And all of a sudden, someone's coming with something that sounds like the authoritative word of God, but yet it's, it's different. And so he's getting their attention. But he says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What does the law and the prophets mean? It is all of the written scripture that they had at the time. What we have is Genesis through Malachi. So what are the implications of this statement that Jesus just made? We, we can say it this way. Jesus, when he reads the Old Testament, he's reading it as an autobiography. Everything that is written in the Old Testament is about 
Jesus. He's saying, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. He's saying, hey, all that was written pointing to me, it's about me. He's saying when you read the Old Testament scriptures, you are reading his own story before he came. And he says, I mean, hear these words. Don't miss these three little words here. He said, he said, I have come. Those words, I have come, it speaks to the mission, the purpose. Jesus came for mission. He came for purpose. And he's saying, I came, I came for purpose, and that purpose was fulfilled. Jesus knows he's been sent to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's been sent to fulfill all that Scripture has proclaimed, prophesied, and taught. So what does that word fulfill mean here? We've used it a few times. We want to make sure to understand it properly and define it rightly. You know, we can look at that word and the word fulfill, it has, we can, it's rich. There's, it's kind of multifaceted. And I really don't think we have to pick one of these. I think they all come together to paint the full picture of the, of the authority and work of Jesus. So first we see that there was already a rich Jewish tradition that we see in passages like Isaiah 2 and 3 and then also in Jeremiah 31. We'll read these verses in Jeremiah 31. Uh, and it's this tradition that under, the Jewish people understood that the Messiah would come to teach, to give greater understanding to the law, to the word, to teach it more clearly. Let's look at these verses together real quick. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. 31, 31 through 34. It'll be on the screen so you don't have to turn there, I believe. Uh, yes, so it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That comes when Jesus comes, so we're there. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. A law becomes a part of them. It's not just something that they, they get hit with. And I will write it on their hearts. Can you have greater understanding than it being written on your heart? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. He's saying, you will understand when the Messiah comes because the truth will be written on your heart. He's saying no longer will we have to talk about God, but you can actually know him. And because of the Messiah, you can know him in a greater way. So that was already this rich understanding of the prom something that the promised Messiah would fulfill. What we're saying here is when Jesus comes, he will make the meaning of the law clearer and more full. So certainly Jesus did and does that. I mean, just wait until we get the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see. You'll see as he teaches and he brings the deeper understanding and the deeper teaching, he takes what was, what was foundationally understood in the law and misapplied by the Pharisees and used for leverage and control, and he takes it and he brings it to the heart of God, to where it expresses a heart given to God. Another meaning that, that, that I love and one that, that I latch on to, I latch on to all of them, but this one just... It's kind of arrow to the heart here in our text is, is that Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So not only does he fulfill it by teaching it perfectly, he also fulfills it by, 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 by satisfying the, right, the righteous requirement. So Jesus came and he lived, and yes, he lived perfectly. He perfectly obeyed the law and lived without sin. He lives the life that you and I were supposed to. 
the one that we were created to live. When, we were, when Adam and Eve was created, they were created in perfect unity without sin, without blemish. We were intended to live this way. Jesus lived this life without sin. And don't, don't think it was just easy. Yes, he was fully God, but he took on flesh and was fully man. He was weighed down with the same worldliness as you and I. And yet he lived without sin. So this made his death on the cross far more than symbolic. You know, it was more than just a symbol. It was more than just the killing of a good teacher or a prophet or a public figure. It was something far greater. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the righteous requirement demanded by the law. He, he satisfied the wrath of God that was demanded by his creation, his people rebelling. I mean, again, if, if who has greater authority than God? Who has the authority to say there is a requirement to satisfy? We, we fell short. We deserved wrath. Jesus came and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. That's good news. By the way, if you don't know the gospel, the word gospel just means good news. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel of Jesus. It is good news. So finally, we also see that Jesus fulfills the law and what we already foreshadowed a minute ago and that all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament points to him. Jesus, I mean, it's funny because you see Jesus throughout other parts of the New Testament and other letters of, the, of, the, of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see him constantly saying, it's not my time yet. But this is right at the beginning of his ministry. And he's basically revealing his authority and deity and divinity right here. He's saying, hey guys, I am he. The one you've been waiting for, the one that everything that you've based your morality and your living and your hope on, I am the one it's been talking about. I am he, the one you've been waiting on. He basically says it here. He lays it out there. In Matthew, this is a theme throughout his letter, throughout his writing. We see, we see Matthew highlighting that Jesus is the promised Messiah over and over again. He starts it right away in the genealogy. That genealogy is just not some family tree. That genealogy is the genealogy of the Messiah. That's why, that's why Matthew put it there. Where does that genealogy lead to? The Messiah. Who's that? It's Jesus. So the Messiah, the, the, the genealogy of the Messiah, Matthew shows, hey, follow it. It leads to Jesus. He's already proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. He's already established that. He repeatedly uh, he repeatedly uses language like, then was fulfilled when he's speaking of the, the works of Jesus. And he points back to something that was in the Old Testament. We also see Matthew even shows that the history of the Old Testament points to Jesus. We see in Matthew 2.15 that he refers to Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1 we're talking about is talking about the people of Egypt being delivered and so we see in Matthew 2.15 when he says, out of Egypt you will come. Even the history of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And Matthew shows that that was fulfilled in him. So we see that Jesus fulfills the scriptures in every kind of way. Any way you want to look at it, he fulfills it. So what do we do with this? How do we respond? It, it, it demands a response. I mean, do we realize what Jesus just said? Jesus just made the claim. He says, everything that was ever written was about me. 
So what are we to think? Maybe you've heard this. Yes, Lewis talking about this. He put it pretty starkly. He says, there's only three options when you come to this reality. He says, the first option is that you look at Jesus as a liar. Meaning that Jesus knew what the truth was, but he fabricated an altogether different truth that exalted him as this, and he taught a false claim. So he knew the truth, but he taught deceit. So option one, Jesus is a liar. Option two, option, option two is that Jesus is a lunatic. In his great delusion, he truly believed what he taught, but he was absolutely wrong. He was insane. So we've got, when we come to this proclamation, to this declaration of Jesus, that we, for our first option, Jesus is a liar. Second, that Jesus is a lunatic. Or third, that he is who he says he is and that he's Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. He knew the truth. If he's the Lord, he knew the truth and is in his right mind and his proclamation is true. He is Lord. He cannot be a good man. He cannot be a prophet. cannot be a good teacher if he's not Lord because the claims would disqualify him. The claims would prove him to be a liar or a lunatic. So we are, when you hear this, you cannot be indifferent. You have to decide. So, I say Jesus is Lord. I believe that. So let me, let me tell you how Jesus and the Old Testament are related. See, the Old Testament is like Jesus' fingerprint it's, it, you, you know, you go and you look for it and you see there's evidence of Jesus. It points to Jesus. Also, the Old Testament is like, it's like a road that leads, this is like perfect way my mind works illustration, a road that leads to a cul-de-sac. You know, and you want a house in a cul-de-sac, right? If you don't know, you do. Let me just tell you, you do. It's nice. There's less traffic. You know pretty much the people that are there are there for a reason. If you don't recognize the car, you know something's going down. You need to perk up your ears, get your baseball bat, Okay. <laughs> Get your baseball bat. Um, cul-de-sacs are good, but the Old Testament's like a cul-de-sac is that you know you can pull into your cul-de-sac, but you're not home yet. The cul-de-sac, the road going to the cul-de-sac leads you home, but you're not there. That's like the Old Testament. It leads you to Jesus, but it doesn't get you the promise of Jesus. Only Jesus brings you that promise. You still have to pull into the driveway and go inside to be home. The Old Testament is meant to lead us to Jesus, but we must finish the journey and come into Christ. Sadly, sadly, many get to the cul-de-sac but can't believe there could be redemption. They can't believe there could be actually a culmination, a destination that, that could satisfy their great need that we all know. We all know and know that it's there. We sense that it's there. And they keep working themselves up and down the road all the while that Jesus is inviting them to come in. But the Old Testament just shines a spotlight on Jesus. It doesn't distract. It illuminates Jesus. So let me illustrate it one more way. How do you get to know someone? I see some new faces in here today. Always fun. You come into here today and and new person walks in and you decide... Let's just go ahead and step into the awkward. I'm going to say, hey, you know, and like, so this is my new person. Andy, I don't know your name yet. Stand up. So he stands up, and our lighting is not great for my illustration, but let's pretend that he has a shadow here. And I'm like, how you doing? What's your name? 
trying to shake his shadow's hand. I'm talking to his shadow. You know, hey, and he answers, I'm, I'm good. I'm like, what's your name? Andy. I'm like, that's cool, Andy. And I'm, I'm like learning pieces of Andy. I can hear things. I can kind of see his general shape. I can tell that I think he's a dude. I can, and that was not a joke. I'm just talking about shadows. I know Andy's a dude. He's a dude's dude, okay? I know that. I know this. Yes, we eat pastries every Thursday morning, but he's still a dude's dude, okay? Common bond, 7 a.m., we're there, okay? Well, blacksmith too. So anyway, but you know, you learn pieces about him, but yet you don't get the full picture. You don't get the full reality. Thank you. Hey, dude's dude. All right. Always good to get a hug in the middle of a sermon. But again, that's what the Old Testament is meant to. It's meant to reveal the reality, but yet there is still a greater reality. And that is, again, what Jesus is saying. I came to fulfill. I came to show you the full reality of the promise of God. Let's keep moving. Oh, my goodness. This is fun. That was the first question. Are you kidding me? I think they'll go faster. We're, we're more than halfway through my paper anyway. Um, let's get to the second question. So why was it necessary that Jesus should fulfill the law? Why should the law be completed in Christ? If we're saying he fulfilled it, he completed it, why? Why does that need to happen? Jesus brings continuity in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He makes it impossible to deny the importance of both. He makes it impossible to deny and say that the commands of God are separate in the two. He makes it impossible to elevate one above the other. He says, Jesus is in both. He is the hinge point. He is the focal point. We cannot disregard the Old Testament or the New Testament when we see Jesus. We can't say the Old Testament is not good for anything longer. Any, you know, it's not any good any longer. All that came in the Word took on flesh as the Word, as we see in John 1. And all that Jesus established stands on what was. It does not abolish, as he says. So let's read Matthew 5.18. It says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When was the last time you used the word iota in a sentence? Hey, don't forget your, to iota your letters. Anyway, yep, jokes for him. They're good in my head, guys. I don't, I don't, I don't write them down. They're just all real time. So um, ask me. Uh, no, don't ask me. Okay, let's just keep moving. So, but now he says, hey, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So notice the word for right there at the beginning. It says Jesus, when he uses that word for, he is saying that he came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. And that word for is like saying because. So I did this so that. Because why? Because Jesus came to fulfill the law because not one dot or iota will pass away you're like, that's just what it said. You haven't said anything yet. So let me just tell you, here's the strength of this statement. There's, there's, and, and when we think about this statement, there's probably no stronger statement pointing to the completeness and the inerrancy and the authority of all of Scripture. Again, right now Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, but he is the Word. He brought us the New Covenant, the New Testament as well. So we, to me, this is the, the strongest statement we get of the entire efficacy and inerrancy and completeness and authority of the word. Jesus was referring to the same Old Testament you and I have, just to remind you one more time. He's saying every bit of it 
is God's authoritative word that God breathed out and inspired down to the smallest detail, dots and iotas. We have, like, we dot our I's and we, like, cross our T's. Thinking of the Hebrew language, these are those little, just little marks that, that, that change the letter. I mean, it's just, like, the slightest little, and it makes the whole word different. And he's saying, like, even, even the smallest, smallest bit of my word matters. Even the smallest bit of my word carries all of my authority. Even the smallest piece of my truth will carry with its authority until the end of all things. The law and prophets have a binding authority until all that God intends is fulfilled. Do you hear that statement? The law and prophets, the the full word of God has perpetual authority. Look at the authoritative way in which Jesus communicates the authority of of this scripture that they have, the Old Testament. He grounds the authority of his teaching and the authority of scripture in who? Himself. Jesus didn't claim authority by any other. He says, I tell you the truth. You know, in the Old Testament, it was the word of the Lord is spoken. The Lord is spoken. In the New Testament, it's, it is written. He said, I tell you. He claimed it in his own authority. So how does this affect how we view Scripture? I pray that it changes everything and affects everything. Does, does Scripture just contain some truth? in its writings, or is it all of truth? Is it the truth? Do we believe that Scripture contains some of the truth that we need today, but some of it is kind of useless now? And, you know, with the advances of science and culture and enlightened understanding, you know, so some of it's good, but we don't need all of it. Does this start to shake those understandings when we think of Scripture this way. Let me just tell you, we we like Jesus. We like what he did for us. We like saying we're followers of Jesus because of the hope and salvation that we have in him. But let me just tell you, if you say you are a follower of Jesus, you must believe what he believes. You must teach what he teaches. You must live out what he teaches. Jesus said he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, and that its authority stands forever. The word of God, hear this, the word of God will outlast the world. Absolutely. It will outlast the world. The world cannot move past the authority and the efficaciousness, the effectiveness I love that word, but I always feel like I need to say it another way, of the law of God. The world cannot move past the authority of the law of God, of the truth of God. So does our interaction with the word of God reflect this reality? So whether in your personal times of devotion, as we open up the word in these, or as we open up the word in these gatherings, this should absolutely impact how we come to it with a hunger, with a thirsting. Do not approach the word with the understanding. We should approach the word with the understanding that it is God who is speaking. And that even the smallest detail stands with full authority until the end of the world. One last word before we get to the next question. We should read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. Simply meaning when you read 
understand, again, like we've already said, it's pointing to Jesus. It doesn't mean that every verse is a direct teaching about Jesus, saying this is, you know, but every verse is pointing to Jesus. So we need to ask questions like that. How does this verse get me to Jesus? How does this verse reveal Jesus? How does this passage point to Jesus? We need to read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind because it is all pointing to Jesus as we know that he fulfills it. The law is meant to reveal Jesus and our need for him, but should not replace our need for him. So it points to him. It always does. It can never, we never stand on it by itself. We stand on it as it leads us to our need for Jesus and the work he accomplished. Third question, what should the attitude of Christians be in relation to the law? So how should we view it? So Jesus already defined the law in relation to him. And just notice that he defined the law in relation to him. He didn't define himself in relation to the law. He defined the law in relation to him. Verse 19, when we come to it, Jesus is teaching the relationship of his disciples to the law in verse 19, those who are in Christ. Notice the verse 19 begins with a therefore, which means that it flows out of what was already stated in verses 17 and 18. So we're picking up a head of steam coming into 19. He's been building this case. And so therefore, from what I've said before, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Are you used to being hearing this kind of stuff, like this conditional thing? When we, you know, if you're in a church that talks about the gospel a lot, it doesn't it just doesn't quite seem to fit. So here, here's what we see if Jesus indeed fulfills the law and commands. Here's what we see, and then his people should live and teach those commands as well. So look at the two scenarios Jesus lays out. In the first one, a person relaxes the commands of God, and teaches others to do so. And when that happens, he's called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Second scenario, a person will practice the commands of God and teaches others to do so, and is called great in the kingdom of heaven. You hear that? Again, to clarify how a person obeys and teaches the commands of God affects they're standing in his kingdom. You're like, okay, I feel like we're going in like different directions. In this day that Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees and scribes were in the habit of relaxing or extending the law. For example, which we will, again, we'll kind of work through this as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. For example, you know, old, the law says to love your neighbor. Well, the Pharisees would relax it and say, okay, well, we're going to love our neighbors, but we don't have to love our enemies. They would relax it. Or we would see where they would extend the law, where, you know, you see in the law, you see that it says, hey, you can't divorce except for, in the, in the instance of adultery. And they said, well, we have that, so let's just, we can take some more ground here. And it ended up being that, like, if you didn't like the way your wife cooked dinner, you could write a letter and divorce her, literally. So they extended the law. So you see there's this already this relaxing and extending to the favor of and control of the Pharisees' desire. So when we have to, again, with, with very sober hearts and minds and humble, humble postures, ask ourselves, how are we relaxing or extending the commands of God and teaching others to do the same? This is, this is to those who are in Christ. This is to those who, have, who, who acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord. This is to you and me. How, let's just be honest and be prayerful about that and pray that the Lord would 
would continue to work in us and transform us to where we don't relax or extend. I mean, should we be looking for loopholes? Should we be looking to do just enough to be faithful? I don't think so. And I don't mean this to be a guilt trip. I just mean, and we'll get there, to, it doesn't make sense when you recognize that we are in this loving relationship. We should strive for obedience. It should be our pleasure. We see two things that are necessary to be honored in the kingdom. First, we must be doers of the word, those who practice the commands of God. Not like, you know, we think about the guy talked about in James. You know, don't be like the guy who looks in the mirror and turns around and forgets what his face looks like. Don't be the guy who or the person who, who hears the truth of God all the time, but then goes about their life as if they've never heard it. Goes about their life as if it's not penetrating or changing. It's not transforming. We should latch on to the teaching of Jesus and live it out consistently, albeit imperfectly. And not because we think that kind of obedience leads to salvation in any way but rather that it is is an expression of love and adoration for Jesus. We find joy in it. It is not to attain our salvation. It's an expression of our salvation. I mean, John 14, 15, Jesus says it pretty clearly. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's an expression of love, not an earning of love. It's an expression of love. Hear this. Hear this right here. Absolutely, our love for God is measured by our obedience to him, but his love for us is not attained by that obedience. He loves you because you're his. Again, so the obedience is an offering. It's a joy. So instead of legalism, you express love. Not legalism, love. And it says you must teach others to do the same. And that sounds really familiar. And we've hit it every week so far in 2016. We're going to hit it again. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we must be disciples, putting into practice the commands of God, who make disciples, teaching others to obey the commands. And doing that, the result of of the teaching is a Christ follower who takes the commands of God seriously out of their love for Jesus. So one more thing before we move on to our last question, just to make sure we don't miss the gospel once again. Notice this, whether you're least in the kingdom of heaven or great in the kingdom of heaven, you are still in the kingdom of heaven, okay? So just in case you're tempted to work your way there, your works don't get you there. Jesus gets you there. So yes, there, are, there is this standing that is affected least and great. And I'll tell you, I, would love, I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, not for my glory, but for his. But man, praise God, we're in the kingdom because of Jesus, And this tension is not easy to exist in. I get it. Like, it's hard for us to process it in our finite minds. We want a pretty box, you know, do's and don'ts, wrapped up in a pretty bow. But our invitation is to live in relationship. To live in relationship with God, unto God, for his glory, made possible in Christ. Think about any relationship you have. 
while you do things for that relationship that you know contribute to that relationship, that make that person happy, you don't want the relationship that is just a bunch of checkboxes. That is not a relationship. So that's the beauty of what we're invited into. Yes, live willfully out the commands of God, but it's in relationship, and that's where you just submit your life to God, get in his word, say, reveal your commands to me. I want to say yes, blank check, here we go, and today here's my offering. Reveal to me my sin so I can confess and be transformed even more, and let me just go forward with your confidence. So once again, we see that our obedience is expected and even commanded, but does not secure that salvation. So finally, our fourth question. Here we go. Coming to the down home stretch. What does Jesus require for entrance into heaven? Big question. Hopefully, hopefully that's one we've all wrestled with or are wrestling with. Verse 20 says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One more time, use your imaginations and immerse yourself in the setting. What do we know about the Pharisees and the scribes? Think about the people sitting around there. These are, these are people that are new to his message. Yes, some of their disciples are his inner circle, but they're still pretty new to this. Everyone's new to this. So the, the people that are the seasoned religious leaders are the Pharisees and the scribes. They're sitting there, and I'm sure there's some Pharisees and scribes standing around. And if not, they're, they're, they recognize, they've seen them walk down the streets with their scrolls on their head with the word. And they've, they've, they've heard them memorize whole books. They can tell you every law by memory, all 600 and something of them. They can tell you which ones are positive, which one, how many are positive, how many are negative. 200 and something, and I don't know the exact numbers, 300 and something, I guess it's... it's they, they know their stuff. Like, these are the people that they ascribe to up to this point of how they are supposed to be if they want to please God, if they want to be considered righteous. And yet he says, no, you don't get into the kingdom unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. There was no one more righteous on the earth than those people. So imagine the weight you would feel all of a sudden. Like, do your shoulders just sink? It'd be, it'd be like, if you know who Billy Graham is, like, he's the iconic godly man of our age. It'd be like, you know, me saying to you, hey, like, you cannot get into heaven unless you have done more things for God than Billy Graham. If you don't know, the dude has, like, led millions of people to Jesus, literally. Like, literally. And so, like, he's, and that's just the surface. Like, he's done all sorts of stuff. So it would be like me telling you, you need to have done more things for God, for his kingdom, than Billy Graham so that you can get into the kingdom of heaven. That's terrifying. Like, no, that's, you're not supposed to end with that, Jesus. No, that, like, that's not where you've been heading. I thought you were telling me it wasn't because of this. And so what is he saying, right? Who can surpass that righteousness? This, of course, you know, we, we're, we're there, right? We've talked about it a lot. This is not the fair sake righteousness secured by the law that Jesus is talking about. This is the righteousness that is secured by, by, by a, a totally an outside work of ourselves, this is the righteousness we are filled with. Not that we express solely, but we are filled with this righteousness. Back to the Beatitudes from a few months ago. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Not just satisfied, but filled with righteousness. The righteousness that, that delivers. 
Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you are made righteous in your faith in Christ. So hear this. If you've not called on Christ as Savior, if you haven't acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, you haven't been filled with his righteousness. And, and, I, and I say this with love, but I want you to feel the sting of the words that, that are here in this passage. It says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's strong. There's no wiggle room there. You will never, unless you've been filled with the righteousness that Jesus delivers. But let the sting, let that sting, let that con- condemnation, that conviction lead to a hopeful surrender. Because that declaration of, of that, that never comes with an invitation. It comes with an invitation. Don't sit in the cul-de-sac. Jesus is saying, come home. Come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest is the rest for your soul that is no longer striving to attain the favor of God, but that he attained for you. He says, I will make you righteous. I will make you worthy of my kingdom. If you are a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, hear the promise and the responsibility of this truth. Do not relax even the smallest mark of the law, but rather live out a joyful offering unto God. And in that, being called great in the kingdom of heaven. We live holy lives because he is worthy. And there is no greater fulfilling, there's no greater effort, there's no, there's no greater fulfilling effort that we can give in ourselves besides that. So after all, we were created for the will of God. To live out what you're created for is the most satisfying thing you can do. So we say holiness is happiness. It is. That is a life that is full of joy. We must live as a disciple of Jesus who also makes disciples of Jesus. And in doing that, we live under the authority of God's word until his work is accomplished.